Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Les enfants qui montent, ils n'auront pas paradis. Oui. <laughs> do, do, can you name that? Can you name that? No. I know you said, I know you ended in paradise. Oh, my goodness. When I awake in my boudoir. You, anything? No. Are you singing Prince? Yes. <laughs> okay. I I don't know Prince nearly as well as you know Prince. Oh, I celebrate the entire catalog. I think we're pretty yeah. much aware of that. Listen, here's the thing. You just did hashtag Lubu, Luxembourg uh, Film Festival, and you spent some time in Paris <laughs> completely alienating your children forever by not taking them with you. That's awesome. Uh, parenting win. And then uh, that makes me think of the Prince uh, album and film. Uh, well, the, the the album Under the Cherry Moon uh, uh, was known as Parade. Uh, and uh, the, on that album is the song Do You Lie. It's, it's very catchy. Opens with a small child speaking small child French. The children who lie don't go to paradise. And that brings us back to your children, who clearly have lied. They don't go to Euro Disney. That's right. Disneyland Paris. They yeah. do not get to go there. Yes. All of those things were in my mind this whole time. And I've been singing Do You Lie for like a week and a half. That's funny. Mm -hmm. You know what I've been singing in my head Tell like me. the whole time I was I was wandering through Paris? There Tell were, me. There were two songs. And then the all the music from Amelie kept like <laughs> out of my head. And the two songs were Be Our Guest oh. <laughs> and The Bells of Notre Dame. So clearly oh. it was like my Disney influence. <laughs> Do you know what? The Bells of Notre Dame, I actually heard that one ringing through my cranium a few times. Some of those pictures you posted of, at Notre Dame. You, did see, you, you and your wife are exceptional uh, on-location selfie takers. We, we've been taking selfies long before selfies were popular. You really like since, have. Since we met, we've been doing selfies. So it's, yeah, uh, yeah we, we've kind of got it down. I, you really I thought do. that I could do a, a nice little photo montage, like just a, a, you know, a video of them because we <laughs> really don't ever change no, positions. That's <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly what was my observation. Your faces <laughs> don't change. Nothing changes about you. In fact, it, for many of these, because it was such a short trip, I imagine, for many of these, you're wearing the same thing in all these locations. <laughs> and literally, the backgrounds just morph from one fancy Parisian location to another. Look, it's exactly. Notre Dame, kids. Look, now we're on a ride. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Now we're at the Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Bell is feeding us. Wait, what? Uh, that was uh, that was great. It was a good trip. It was great. It was a whirlwind. Uh, the the Luxembourg City Film Festival. Uh, they treat you right. It was a great festival to play at. Um, they really took care of us. A lot of fun. It was great seeing the Joe Show with a uh, foreign audience to get a, a kind of a read on on their thoughts of the movie. And uh, yeah, then we got to spend a couple of days in in Paris and uh, and just uh, 
Yeah, we really had quite a time. It was it was a whirlwind, though. I tell you, living in a city that's pretty much flat, you really take for granted when you go to a place that is uh, uh, has has actual elevation changes. Yeah. Uh, Luxembourg was uh, you know ups and downs all over. I mean, just to get from our hotel to the downtown area is like this huge valley that you had to go through, and it was a great walk, but it certainly tired us out. And then, you know, you spend a day at Disneyland Paris, and then you go to Paris, and let's see, Notre Dame is 400 steps up to the top and then back down. And then to the base of the Eiffel Tower, from, or from the base to the second floor, is like 700 steps. And so we did all these steps, not counting like the metro and everywhere else, we, all the other steps we were on. It's like, we were, our dogs were tired by the end of that trip. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, uh, you went. I know you went for a lot of ancillary reasons, but the uh, primary reason you went uh, all the way to Paris was uh, was just one singular mission on behalf right. of the show. Did you achieve your goals? I certainly did. And oh. I was very, very excited. Yes, on the second floor in the store of the Eiffel Tower, I did in fact purchase, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take it out of the bag right now and hold it while I talk oh, to you. About I hear it. I can yeah, hear it. That's right. I actually bought a little uh, Eiffel Tower statue. It's not quite gold, but yes, I did buy one. Just, uh, just for, this is going to be part of the 2015 uh, Pony Prize drawing. Oh, it is, uh, yeah, in, in honor of the Lavender Hill Mob. Straight from the real Eiffel Tower. I can't wait. Would you That's take? Right. A, could you take a selfie picture of your yourself with it, just like in place of your wife? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna make sure you do that and post it on Twitter. That'll be I a good thing to do. All right. I will do that. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay. Listen, I have. I feel like I have some other things to talk to you about. I just need to do a quick review of some films that I've seen this week. Mm, okay. Can I do that? Because you've probably seen some films. Have you seen I've any seen films? Some films. All right. Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to report that I finally saw RoboCop, the, the, the remake? remake. The remake. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't. You know vomit explosively you know it's an act it's an action film i there were some things i liked about it uh i like the choice they made uh about making him uh much more uh sentient like he was he was definitely a a dude in this in the case and Mm, oh my god uh the the uh the entrance of robocop and i mean you see him in the in the suit you see him in the suit and then then they take him apart and that was horrifyingly cool um, there, there's a sequence where they, they say, you know, here, we're going to show you what happened to you. And they start pulling off his limbs and stuff to show him what's left of his body. And I don't want to spoil it. In fact, I really do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> since we're a, a show about spoiling stuff, uh, all that's left are his lungs and his spinal cord and his head. And so his lungs wow. are in a glass case and his heart is beating kind of behind it, but everything else comes apart and it's really it's a really cool effect. So that was a real highlight of the movie. So then I put it away. I don't need to see it again. The next one I saw was Predestination. <laughs> oh, yes. I okay. need to watch that one. I, You've been talking about that one for weeks now. I have, and it's totally worth it. I just feel like we haven't talked about it since we last talked about it. Now I need you to, to talk about it because it was great. <laughs> it was super great. Um, and I then immediately went and bought the book. Uh, it's actually a short story. It's all you zombies. Uh, uh, part of a collection of Robert uh, Robert Heinlein uh, collection. And the book, it was a great adaptation. They actually did a really, really good job of taking this Heinlein short story and turning it into a really uh, interesting and well-executed uh, time travel flick. you got to see it so that we can talk about it. 
That's, oh, wow. that's that. It was really fun. Uh, nice. And then I saw one after the other, just now that the Oscars are over, I just wanted to just, just see them all again. And so two in one night, one the next, Birdman, Whiplash, Theory of Everything. The only one I stood up and cheered after was Whiplash. So I watched it again the next night with my wife. I That movie is connects with me at a level that none of the other films in the running did and i stand by it that's that's the one that i feel changed by in some level um the others were fantastic and i think uh, uh but but whiplash is the one i is really going to stick with me that's nice. it that's it that's my I, whole thing i did see whiplash and i completely agree uh, i don't know if it's the one that's at the top of my list but i think that it was still just a, a, an incredible incredible film in brilliant performances yeah. and i was really impressed with it i still need to see selma and american sniper i'm hoping to get to those american sniper is still playing in the theater so i can probably sneak yeah, off to yeah. that one i think selma would now now gonna have to wait for that one to be released on right right disc. um okay now uh do you have anything else uh no, I don't think so. Oh, you know what? I did see at the fe- film festival. I saw the new uh the new uh Noah Baumbach movie um which is uh oh, what's it called? While We're Young? Yeah, didn't we trailer that one? I can't remember if we talked about the trailer for that one. I'm I don't almost I don't sure we, we I think we wanted to. Yeah, I don't think we did. Man, okay, what'd you think? You know, I I don't know. I kind of I don't think I fully click all the time with Noah Baumbach's films. Um, I really liked uh, The Squid and the Whale. And um, that may be it. Uh, I, I haven't seen, uh, granted, I've skipped a lot of his films because there's there's a, a level of indie that I just don't connect with in his films. Like Francis Ha, I hated that film. Yeah, I know. I know you have I, a thing with Francis I know a lot Ha. of people really love that film, but I just can't stand it. Um, While We're Young has a lot of great stuff going for it, and I think it's a film that a lot of people might like. Um, but it uh, there were elements to it that, uh, especially as it built toward the climax, that just didn't work for me at all. Um, I liked the characters in it. I liked the journey they took. It was really funny. Uh, we are all cracking up about it because it's about, you know, a middle-aged documentary filmmaker who starts hanging out with this this younger couple uh, because they're, uh, you know, they have so much more life and everything. And it was just funny being over at in Luxembourg. I was there with uh, with Randy and his wife, and we're all like documentary filmmakers, and it's just, <laughs> you know, and, and and it's taking you know Ben Stiller's character ten years to make this film that he's working on. And you know, it took ten years to get the Joe Show made. And it just there was there was some funny similarities <laughs> that made us all crack up quite a bit. <laughs> so <yeah>. funny. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. All right, so I should see it. Is what you're saying? It's I, you know, it it has a lot of good stuff going for it. I I think it uh, by the time it got to the end, it fell apart um, a little bit. But I still think that it's uh, it's worth seeing. Plus, Charles Grodin is back. I hadn't uh, I didn't know that he was. Uh, I thought he'd kind of retired, but. There he was, and it excited me quite a bit to see him. That's awesome. We missed yes. him. All right. Uh, let's put it on the list. And uh, before we, or immediately after we add it to our list of things that I need to see, then we're going to tell everybody where we're from, huh? Yeah, where are we from? Hey, 
Hey, everybody, this is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that right over there is Andy Nelson. Bonjour. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the final in our mystery series with Olivier Dahan's 2007 bio epic, La Vie en Rose. Uh, this is the big night. Stay tuned uh, to the very end of the show for instructions because Andy is going to be very clear because he's so well prepared about <laughs> just how you're going to enter to win a very big prize. If you can figure out what ties this mystery series together, the last four movies we've done, they all tie together somehow. And instructions are coming at the very end of this episode so you can enter the prize and win. It's a very big prize. Very big. <laughs> Extra yes. large. Extra large prize. Could be. It might be. <laughs> okay, but before we get into that, uh, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. You follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you want to throw down with the big brains, you head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play our hashtag pony prize. Hashtag custom hashtags are for dummies. Hashtag guest movie challenge. Andy, what did we do against our uh, fiends and foes this week? Uh, you know, it was a. Uh, I think it was a pretty good week. It was a. Uh, I think it took until image five this week uh, for Glarsed to guess that. I, I'm just guessing that's how you say this uh, user's name, but Glarsed did get from image five that it was indeed the fascinating revenge thriller Blue Ruin, which uh, came out uh, a few years ago. I love that movie. Um, but even as much as I love it, I couldn't figure it out either until Image 5. So those are pr some pretty strong images that uh, good old Stephen Smart threw up there to uh, to get people uh, guessing in all sorts of different directions. And now, uh, yeah, Glarsed is uh, entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. Maybe Glarsed will be walking away with this little Eiffel Tower. <laughs> I'm going to start entering under a strange pseudonym because I want the Eiffel Tower so bad. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. That's awesome. Uh, all right. Well, I think uh, if we're finished with old business, it's time. Let's do trailers. From the man who brought us Vanilla Sky and the hit film We Bought a Zoo... <laughs> Comes the next great entry into the Crow Feel Good Cinemanomicon. <laughs> Aloha. Well, you picked it up. Whatever you were missing on Instagram, you sure picked it up just now. <laughs> Andy, come on, man. It's it's got Bill Murray and Alec Baldwin in it, and then a whole bunch of other charming people who are backing them up. Uh, I hope I hope that's the case. Uh, I find it tough to care a lot about all the feel-goodery spewing all over the screen because I find Bill Murray and Alec Baldwin so funny. Uh, just to see them on screen, I, I I do joke about We Bought a Zoo. I'm on the record as actually liking Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous quite a bit, uh, and that's what gets me excited about Aloha from Cameron Crowe. It is uh, full-on formula in all of its very glorious formularity, but Emma Stone, Bradley Cooper, Rachel McAdams, John Krasinski, Jay Baruchel, I like these people. I genuinely like these people, and so uh, I, I'm hoping uh, that uh, I'm hoping it comes together um, and does some more interesting things than are on display in the trailer because the ingredients are, are it could make for an, an interesting film. Well, I remember the good times. There were no good times. You cost us our prime new partner, a new space command center, all gone because cool guy here, Mr. Sexy Pants, Brian Gilchrist, blew the mission. You are going to wear this like Flava Flav wears a clock. Uh, 
it, it's due to hit May 29th, 2015. Are you in? I'm in, as long as it's not Elizabethtown. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that should have been the one that we bought a zoo, Elizabethtown. <laughs> it's, I mean, it looks like... Uh, it looks like it's got some great stuff going for it. I, it looks like he's kind of reaching back for some more Jerry Jerry Maguire, you know, feel good type of storytelling. And you know, I have no problem with that. I love Jerry Maguire, and I if he's going to do another film that's along that line, uh, I'm all for it. I did find it odd that it actually says in the trailer from Academy Award nominated writer Cameron Crowe, and I believe that um, whoever actually made this movie should actually. Instead of uh, paying to uh, have someone make these trailers, they should also pay them to do some research because he did actually win an Academy <laughs> Award for Almost Famous. So let's get it straight, people. I can't believe Cameron Crowe himself didn't say anything about that when he Now, why would they have done that? Because for Almost Famous, he, what, did he win for Best Screenplay? Yeah, and I actually had to go back and look on IMDb again because I'm like, wait a minute, I thought he won. And it got me doubting myself because I'm like, well, they made a trailer. They wouldn't get it wrong in the trailer. And I went and looked on IMDb, and yes, in fact, he did win for Almost Famous, and he was nominated for Jerry Maguire. I did not catch that. That's fascinating. Yeah. So (sighs) way to go, Regency Films. Dumb trailer people. Dumb dummies. (laughs) And Sony, you think Sony? Sony would be able to figure this out? <laughs> well, that oh, that explains it. <laughs> if anybody's going to miss something like that, it's it was probably in some of the, a leaked email. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> What's your trailer? My trailer is uh, well, I, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, it's the new trailer for Tomorrowland, which looks uh, it looks pretty stunning. I've got to say, I, I this is one of those trailers that um really fleshes the story out a lot more than where it was before and gives us a better sense of this world we've got um the young brit robertson uh who comes across this strange pin when she's released from prison it looks like and when she touches it she's transported to uh, tomorrowland it's like this this future world that looks like you know kind of like the disneyland tomorrowland uh, uh section that has kind of this future look from what we thought the future would look like a hundred years ago, sort of thing. She has to go find George Clooney, and there's all this like strange uh, trying to figure out what's going on with all of this, and he's going to take her there. But then you've got like a flying bathtub that they escape in, and my favorite part is the uh, is the trip in the Eiffel Tower rocket ship, which I, apparently I missed that door when I was walking around <laughs> in the Eiffel Tower. Where it's you know a secret little panel I guess you go through and and sure enough uh, apparently when Eiffel built the tower back in 1889, actually built it to be a rocket ship to take people to Tomorrowland. Who knew? With every second that ticks by, the future is running out. That's not mine. What's not yours? The pen. I've never. <laughs> <laughs> What if there was a place? Dad, I just need you to look at this. Does it look weird? A secret place where nothing was impossible. You're not saying this? Casey, stop it! I love some of the visual concepts in this film. Like when she holds the pin and she's in the car and the car disappears and suddenly she's in a car-shaped invisible thing. 
but floating along the field. I thought that was so cool. Uh, uh, yeah. But what really got me was uh, rocket rocket powered bathtub evacuation system. <laughs> that was so fun. I just every around every corner is just something really fun in this um, in this trailer. So I it definitely unleashed a lot of my uh, my inner child. And this is one of those films that you know Disney can be really good. I mean they've got the deep pockets for it, but they can be really good at that whole world building thing that we talk about so much on the show. They've been doing uh some some web kind of covert marketing for this and it's it's you know, it's interesting the way they're actually trying to uh, develop this this other world. Like you've got these beings, I, I, or this this whole uh, I don't know what you. It's a faction, I guess you'd you'd call them that are out to stop these people that are um, you know the Tomorrowland people or whatever. And it's like this plus ultra, and so this this whole website stopplusultra.com. That is like this, it's, you know, it's this whole just thing about all these people who had these visions and, and don't let all this blind, you know, blind you and all this. And we got to, we got to keep, keep, you know, from getting recruited and stuff like that. It's, it's fun that they're actually dropping a lot of these little things out there and the internet to kind of get people excited for it. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a, it looks like it's going to be a fun little uh, summer romp. When did did you say when it hits? Ah, it's just a week before yours. This is May 22nd. Oh, excellent. Well, you always have to one-up me. I, I mm-hmm. try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Andy. Yes? You are my champion. I want you to be mine for life. Nothing existed before you. It's all gone. Marchons, marchons, abreuve nos sillons. Streets of Paris. De la rue au Gernise, voici la baume Pierre. And survived using the only gift she had. Je vais t'écouter tous les soirs chez Le Play, tu as beaucoup à apprendre. Oh, t'es bien le premier qui me dit ça. Picture House proudly presents. Hold me close and hold me fast. A true story of the voice of a nation whose talent would captivate the world. What is happening? Il faut bien jouer avec quelque chose. C'est payé, balayé, oublié. Je veux que tu sois à moi pour la vie. Mesdames et messieurs, Edith Piaf La vie en rose. Oui. Andrew. Oui, oui. Uh, Olivier Olivier Dahans. A uh, biopic covering the life of Edith Piaf, mm-hmm. the little sparrow. Uh, this is a. It's kind of crazy. This movie is kind of crazy. <laughs> Structurally, it's it's really crazy, uh, and and it takes some. It takes. It's you know. It feels like you you're going diving, uh, kind of doing a little deep sea action, but you 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 may not have the oxygen connected all the way. You know. 
<laughs> a little bit loopy watching this movie. Uh, but it's uh, but I had a good time watching it, m- mostly because of the incredible performance, the Oscar-winning performance by uh, Marion Cotillard, who is who plays the uh, the role of Miss Piaf, and she is um, stunning. In a word, uh, how did this film do for you? It's uh, yeah, I agree. It's I, this is a, a a great example of a a solid biopic that tells really kind of the full life story of somebody. This is not a biopic like Lincoln or Selma that tells a very select portion in time in somebody's life. This is really the beginning to end sort of life story of somebody. Um, and I think they do a very good job with it. Um, that being said, it's, 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 there's so much stuff going on in her life. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like I learned a lot about Edith Piaf and I, I didn't know much about her or her life. And I hadn't listened to many of her songs, um, other than like the, you know, the, the one that inception made uh, so popular and stuff like that. Um, although now I've, because of this film, I've actually got an album and I've been listening to her like nonstop since, but it's, um, it's just, there's so much going on in her life and it's a mess of a life, man. I mean, she's got just, uh, I mean, I feel horrible. Like the stuff that she went through in her life and the stuff that, um, that she ended up having to deal with and, and uh that shaped her nature nature nurture am i right yeah right it's wow yeah it's it really is um it's just it's horrible and i just um was really shocked and I, i think it's just one of those stories though that shows you that somebody who has some skill like she clearly does she clearly has this uh beautiful voice that really transports people um it was uh, enough to get her discovered and uh, so that she was able to actually, you know, change direction in her life and actually step out of the gutters where she had been. I mean, working as a – she never quite prostituted herself, but she was working for a pimp and she would, instead of sleeping with people, sing on the street to make money and then he got his cut from that. But still, she was pretty close to that world and, uh, I mean, drugs and – yeah, she's mm-hmm. she's a mess. The I, one of the things I liked so much about this portrayal, and I thought was, and and again, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I I know really as much as I learned in this film, I know now about Edith Piaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from you know, I sort of grew up listening to Edith Piaf. My my folks were big Edith Piaf fans, weirdly enough, and uh, and so we always sort of had uh, one or two of the kind of reprints of the albums. Uh, Kind of in in the rotation for you know family dinners or something like that. We would always have kind of Edith Piaf on, but I didn't know anything about her. And then you know, so I saw this movie, and what I find so fascinating about it is she she's never really one hundred percent likable, you know. And I thought that it it felt like a very honest sort of portrayal. Like she's always she's she's a horrible alcoholic, right? Drug user. She's she is not uh, not a healthy person. She's uh, an incredible prima donna mm-hmm. um and and yet somehow i think because of marion cotillard's performance i am just drawn in to her she's just captivating and even as i don't like her all that much uh, as as she builds toward a breakdown which we need to talk about just sort of how that works in terms of the structure of the film 
um, I am, I, I am inc- find myself incredibly emotional just watching her performance. And as she sort of unravels at the end, even though I don't really like her, um, I, I don't find her saying I would not hang out with her. You know, she's, she's not somebody that I would, I would want to socialize with this, this interpretation of Edith Piaf. She's incredibly codependent. And I think that's a really hard thing to play with nuance in, in film. But this person who, you know, who's once she finds uh, the man of her dreams and it ends up being in a in an unfaithful relationship, she's she's having an affair on this, you know, uh, with a guy who is married with three kids like she ends up developing a really sort of unhealthy kind of um, uh, a, a love addictive relationship, uh, which is which is interesting to capture on film. You know, this is a, it's a psychological, um, experience, you know, that you're, you're watching her. She has been so, uh, damaged emotionally from by her mother and by these other women in her life who end up just going sort of bananas on her in her youth. Uh, and she, she just sort of can't get enough of this guy. Right. Uh, and I, I, and in a not very healthy way. Uh, and I found myself really interested in that angle. Um, and so I, I think, her performance is is why you see this film. For me, the film is is just chaotic enough that it's uh, if she wasn't in it and it was the same film, um, it'd have to be pretty compelling to see again. I agree. I mean, her performance is the reason to watch this film. She's she is stunning in the film. Whether she's a, a young, uh, you know, just past the street urchin stage is pretty much when she starts portraying her, um, all, or all the way up through the you know the little. Uh, little Edith Piaf when she's, you know, in her, I don't know how old did she live to be. I think she's uh, in her forties. She was only in her late forties, but I mean, geez, she, she was, she was so arthritic that she, she was basically like this little old lady and, and Marianne plays her just brilliantly from, from beginning to end from the, the way that she portrayed her as the, as the the brazen street uh, street singer to the nervous singer uh, on stage in front of a music hall for the first time to uh, you know the the emotional issues that she goes through when whether she's you know getting separated from friends or having stage fright or having this kind of this separation anxiety from this this uh, boxer that she falls in love with to just the uh, uh to this little old lady kind of hobbling around i mean she's she just plays it so well that i i completely forget that i'm even looking at an actress it just feels so authentic uh, authentically real as as edith piaf the physicality of this role is is one that is the the thing that really struck me the fact that her body looks so authentically contorted yeah. Um you know both in in her younger days right she's she has a stance like it's a it's very much a just sort of sheepish kind of shamed stance uh when she's nervous standing on stage in front of that giant microphone you know before she learns to sing with her hands right. it it she has a stance and and I find that really you know it's a a kind of entrancing um you know, look, it, it makes you want to kind of, gosh, can I, can I help her somehow? She needs, she yeah. needs kind of a cheerleader, but when she hits, you know, old age, I mean, she, she ends up playing, uh, Edith Piaf at 47, um, looking like Edith Piaf at, at 70. Yeah. Or 80. Yeah. She's striking. It, 
it's it is unreal watching the curve of her back and shoulders and the way her head uh kind of lilts from side to side the way when when she walks into this room with her agents and and is at the bitter end of the film she is she walks into this room to, to be introduced to a new song and she says you know give me a chair that sequence of her watching her sit down is incredibly painful to watch i mean she's just so good uh and appropriately you know did win the oscar for this um for and and i think what was it one of one of five times it's been uh given to somebody uh for playing a non-english speaking role i well and i think this was wasn't this the first time it was uh in french right yeah yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there is, yes, it's one of six. So the Academy Award for a part mainly spoken in a foreign language went to Sophia Loren, Robert De Niro, Benicio Del Toro, Robert Benini, and Christoph Waltz, in addition to Marion Cotillard. She she certainly deserved the Oscar. This is one of those performances that you see somebody do that you just like, it's, it's so stunning that, you know, that she's really embodying this this person and i this was the first time i had seen this i missed this when it came out back in 2007 i remember it being kind of a a a big thing at the time because i wasn't it it was all non-americans who won the acting oscars that year is her um it was uh tilda swinton for um uh what's it called uh the michael clayton um I think it's just Michael Clayton. Not not the Michael Clayton. <laughs> was it was it that one, or am I thinking of the uh, wrong thing? Or Penelope Cruz? No, I can't remember. But uh, um, Vanilla Sky. Daniel Day Lewis for There Will Be Blood. Uh, Javier Bardem for No Country for Old Men and Tilda Swinton. Yeah. So it was a you know it was a kind of just kind of a i don't know it was an odd thing i guess it was all non-americans i i don't know it's like they're all actors i don't think that 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 stood out to me that year i just remember it being pointed out that oh is no no american won for an acting oscar that year but it's like you know what they're all great actors they all certainly deserve their performances but uh, she, you know she was up against julie christie from away from her and that was i believe a performance where she was playing somebody with Alzheimer's. I didn't see that. Um, Kate Blanchett in Elizabeth, the Golden Age. Um, Kate certainly should have won the Oscar for Elizabeth, the first one, but not for this, uh, the second one. Ellen Page for Juno. Eh, that's kind of like, yeah, you did yeah. all right, kid. Here's a nomination. And Laura Linney in The Savages. And I think that Laura Linney was pretty spectacular in yes. that film. But I would definitely give it to Marianne Cotillard for this uh, over all those others she was just so good in this film she was she was fantastic um uh, in terms of the uh, those who supported her uh, any anybody jump out at you as a, a you know stunning performance i mean the the headliners that we would know um you know gerard depardieu mm-hmm. uh, is in it for a bit uh and i actually i nearly missed him uh he he doesn't look like Gerard. Oh, I don't film. know. He actually, uh, you, you, his his nose you is him. so unmistakable. It's like, oh, yeah, I, the, I don't know. I had a hard time picking him out. It took me a bit. I think it's funny that he plays Cyrano de Bergerac because because his nose, it's not long, but it certainly is one of the most bulbous noses that I've ever seen. And it's pretty unmistakable. So it's like his nose walked in the room. Oh, and there's Gerard behind it. 
<laughs> I, 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 I pretty much can always tell when he's walking in. That's really that's really funny. <laughs> so terrible uh, of I, to say. I did not I did not catch the nose. I must not be caught up on physical appearances. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, but I, you know, any, was his performance particularly notable for you? Um, I don't think it was particularly notable. Um, I thought he was fine in it. This was one of those films where it, it just, the, uh, the performances came and went awfully quickly, I think. Yes. Because of the, uh, the nature of the story being told. You know, I, I think... well, and that's that's where I want to go from here too, because I think you, you that that puts it just right, right? The performances come and go, and and uh, you know, while you're focused on Marion's performance, um, you, you, you these she everybody else is just sort of transient, and some of that suffers, I think, because of the way the story is told, the way the script is structured. It is so dramatically nonlinear um, that. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to get to know people uh, as they change over time. And then, you know, you, you're sort of jumping forward and backward in time, and in some cases by decades, um, so that it's, you know, you, you just, you don't ever really get a chance to get comfortable. Well, no, and Emmanuel Seigneur is another actress who we've talked about on, she was in Diving Bell and the Butterfly. She She's in the early yes. parts of this story, and she disappears so quickly. It's like, oh, I recognize her. Oh, and then she's she never comes back again. And, and she's delightful. She's very charming and really struggling, and and uh, clearly struggling with both emotional issues and you know in her life. I was very interested in in her character and her relationship with uh, the grandmother. I thought it was great. Yeah, but boy, absolutely. You're right. They're just gone. Yeah, they just once once she's out of their circle, uh, we don't go back to them. So, right. uh, but I mean, looking at uh, the other performances. That uh, were were noted. noted. Um, Pascal Gregory was nominated. Um, this this received a number of uh, of the uh, César awards, the uh, French uh, equivalent of the Oscars. I believe it got. Uh, let me see how many did it get? Eleven nominations. Is it eleven? Pascal Gregory uh, for best supporting actor. Marion Cotillard for best actress. Sylvie Testud for best supporting actress. She played her friend. Uh, Momon, I think. Best Cinematography, Tetsuo Nagata. Uh, Best Costume Design, uh, Merit Allen. Best Direction by Olivier Dahan. Best Picture, Olivier Dahan. Uh, Best Production Design, Olivier Rausch. Uh, Best Original Screenplay, Olivier Dahan. And uh, Best Sound. And uh, yeah, it got a lot of nominations. And uh, Best Editing. And it won. It was actually up against The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, oddly enough. Um, it won, I think, let's see, Best Sound, Best uh, Production Design, Best Costume Design, Best Cinematography, and Best Actress. So it won five of its 11 nominations. I don't think, uh, I mean, I'm surprised that Pascal Gregory and Sylvie Testud were nominated for supporting roles because they're so short. Like, uh, Momon, her friend, I mean, yes, she kind of, is you know her friend for a good chunk of the film, but you know I don't know. I guess I'm just so blindsided by Marion's performances, Edith, that um, I don't remember much of Momon's performance. Likewise with Pascal Gregory as as Louis. Um, I know he was there, but I guess I just don't remember it. 
Yeah, I'm I'm with you. And some of it is we've run into this this challenge before in our you know whenever we do uh, like a, a western, right? The <laughs> The ugly man western, <laughs> uh, you know, they all they all just sort of blend together, and this is one of those things. We there are a lot of men in this film that look very similar to me, mm-hmm. like they are striking men of a certain age, and they are all wearing very similar suits. And because of the way the film jumps around, I have a hard time really getting building any sort of relationship with them. I don't know what to focus on, uh, or who is really important, uh, and and that is definitely a shortcoming of mine, I think, and not the films. Well, I don't so know. So that's that's okay. Let's let's talk about that cuz I think the nature of biopics. This is what I was thinking about quite a bit after watching this is um how does somebody decide to approach a biopic like this? This is so all over the place chronologically. I mean, we are jumping back and forth through her whole life. I mean, I, I as I recall, it starts off with her Perform- five years old. Uh, doesn't it? Doesn't it start with her performing and collapsing, and then it jumps back to five years? Oh God, you're right. Yeah, no, she's in. She's like old. 47. Right. It's right before she dies, and then she collapses. That was the one where she falls and this, and she's talking to Saint Teresa right. in the first like five minutes. Yeah. Okay. Right. And and then and then it's jumping back and forth, you know, uh, back to her present life, and as she's having more flashbacks, and then jumping back to her childhood, and then she's, uh, you know, a, a teenager running through the streets. It was so all over the place that I had a hard time, um, really grasping any sense of her her timeline, and really, I just felt like this is more just kind of we're going to be experiencing her bio as kind of an emotional journey rather than uh, you know an, an experience from beginning to end from point a to point z um it, it's i don't know i it's it's a structure that i think it i think it worked for this film but i do think it makes for a challenging biopic and um i don't know i i guess um you know it made me think of other biopics that that do that too where they're jumping around back and forth through somebody's life like iron lady which really is only jumping from her career to just her her late in life as as she's um you know suffering from what was she suffering from alzheimer's yeah or, uh, i can't yeah, remember i don't know but uh, the nature of biopics where you actually feel the need to be moving around quite a bit and jumping back and forth through somebody's life and I, I don't know i mean does that work for you in a biopic or do would you rather have something that's that's either more chronological or that is more focused on something particular. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm thinking about this film in the context of the, or in in comparison to the rumors we're hearing about uh, Aaron Sorkin's Steve Jobs biopic. Hmm. So, you know, this one, as you say, jumps all over the place. We don't really get a sense of, of linearity or of time, and yet you feel like there is some attempt to give us, uh, you know, pieces, important pieces of Edith Piaf's life. There are so many of them, it jumps around so much, you don't really get a beat on what we're, what we're supposed to what what we're supposed to be looking at uh and, and so i like the way you put it and i think you don't really learn that until the very end that w- what you just what you just got as her life is sort of flashing before her eyes is the emotional whole of edith piaf as told through these isolated incidents and and, and i think that that works um it, it, as chaotic as it feels and as as challenging as it must have been to write uh it it was uh, i think it's 
it's interesting. There are some really highlight scenes. But anyway, to the comparison to the Steve Jobs pick is, you know, I, I think really contrasts to this, where apparently it's a two-and-a-half-hour, you know, kind of targeting two-and-a-half-hour film that focuses on the backstage experience uh, and the of three of his giant keynotes leading up to, I think, the iPhone. So not, not sort of anything in later life. And so talk about a, an incredibly isolated uh, attempt to, you know, uh, isolated moments in time uh, as an attempt to paint the portrait of who this person was, um, to just take three over the course of that period as opposed to this, which which gives us, you know, a much broader perspective. I don't know which I which I like better. I find myself, you know, when I see this film, I think, gosh, I would have much rather to, a more linear approach or really a focus on one or two seminal events. And then I think about the Steve Jobs thing. I like, screw that. I'm not really interested in that either. Yeah. What is the best pile pick that you can think of? Uh, like, uh, let's uh, give us a, something to compare it to. Well, it depends on what we're going to focus on as a biopic. I mean, a, Apollo 13 is a biopic. I love that film. You know, I think that's a solid, uh, it, solid, uh, uh, yeah. s- true story of somebody's life. But are you calling that a biopic because it is so focused? I, I don't, I don't I even, I don't think I would call it a biopic just because it's a, it, it's a, it's like a historical drama, right? I mean, it's not, it, it's really not just about him. Right. It, the the intention of Apollo thirteen is to tell the story of the Apollo thirteen disaster. Sure. Right. Sure. The intention of something like the diving bell and the butterfly, for example, is to tell the story of his experience, and I think that's how we would characterize a, a true biopic. Don't you think? Yes, but but again, it's like a biopic. Uh, I don't know. Is the nature of a biopic to give us just something like the diving bell and the butterfly, give us that sense of that portion of his life, or should we be getting a sense of the person's full life from a biopic? Well, that's the question. I mean, I, I definitely get it. Lincoln is the same thing as Apollo 13 is. You know, it's not necessarily focused on Lincoln so much as it is, are they going to, uh, you know, pass this Emancipation Proclamation and, uh, and make a change for the better for our country? But mm. it was pretty much marketed as a biopic of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, it was definitely marketed that way, but I see what you're talking about. I, then, then how do you characterize something like the social network? Uh, you know, is that te- could that technically be characterized as Mark Zuckerberg's biopic? I see, uh, I don't know. It's, I'm struggling with the idea of it. Um, maybe not. Maybe not. How would you compare something like uh, one of my very favorite quote biopics, American Splendor of Harvey Pekar? I, I love that film. Mm-hmm. That's the, again, that's uh, I mean, that one seems a little more like a biopic because that's a much mm-hmm. wider swath of his life. OK, I got one for you. The Aviator. That's definitely a biopic. OK, good. I think we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Hotel Rwanda. I don't think I'd call a biopic. I, I would not call that a biopic. Schindler's Although List. I can see how some people would. No, I wouldn't see. I wouldn't call Schindler's List a biopic either. It's uh, yeah. And so I guess the nature of a biopic is it's going to give us it's going to focus more specifically on the person and their life rather than. But see, Selma, I mean, people are saying, well, I guess people aren't really saying it's a biopic of Martin Luther King. I don't think they are. I think Selma is in, in title even is the story of the of the event and some, you know, yeah, uh, the event and that time in history, that right. moment in history. Yeah. So, huh. okay. Okay. So uh, on, on that, so I, I think we, we're coming down to it, right? Where we're, we're really focusing on, um, you know, the, the, a, a biopic that delivers, um, the focus on the person 
not mm-hmm. the event, right? Right. Walk Under the line, that, Ali, Iron Lady. Where, now what's your lots favorite? Of, well, I don't know. I mean... Number one favorite, and you can never take it back. No takesies backsies. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you are tough. If you can answer in three seconds, I'll give you $5 million. One, two, three. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that was in three seconds. One, two, three. I don't know. <laughs> I, I really did enjoy Walk the Line. I haven't seen it in quite a while, but I do remember liking that one quite a bit. Walk the Line. I, I you know, I, I did. I like that one, too. Um, I, I don't know. I actually liked Capote. I liked Capote, too. But again, I don't think that's a biopic. Yeah, I, I think you might be right. It's called Capote. But it's, it's not Capote, about it's, Capote. Yeah. It's about his struggle writing that book. Wow. They're very deceptive when they name a movie the name of the person, but it's okay, not what ab- really about the person. Okay. What about uh, Jake LaMotta, Raging Bull? That's a great biopic. I think that may be, that may be at the very top of the list. Gandhi? I haven't seen Gandhi in a long time, I, but I do remember liking it quite a bit. But that would be a biopic. Yeah, I think that's a biopic. I think that's Amadeus. characterized as a biopic. Amadeus oh, yeah, is bi- a fantastic Amadeus. biopic. Well, let's just say this. They certainly don't really make biopics like they used to. Amadeus and Gandhi, those were incredible. Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's, okay. There's some good biopics out there. All right. Well, at least I feel like I know better where, the, where to class this film. It's no Schindler's List. It's no uh, Apollo 13. It's definitely Gandhi, Amadeus. I get that. And under that, it doesn't hold up for me as well. The, this film, it, uh, La Vie en Rose, it hangs on the performance of its titular character. Um, it, it, is, it is her film, and that's why you see this film. She is transcendent in it. She is worth it. If she wasn't there, it would not, it would not hold up as a, as a film for me. There were, there were a couple of scenes I want to talk to you about. Um, uh, the scenes that, that particularly struck me as um, scenes that made me think, my goodness, I wish more of the film was like this. <laughs> uh, she is asleep the night before. She had been on the phone with her, uh, her amour. Mm-hmm. and she had been begging him, please get on a plane. Come to me. I can't be without you anymore. Please, I don't care what you have to do. You've got to come see me. Uh, so she's in bed. She wakes up. Uh, he is in bed with her. He's just come in, and he's taken a knee, and he's laid down next to her. He's given her a morning kiss, and she says, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed you. She gets out of bed. She walks down the hall into a really long haul if if i must say the hall's too long the house is too big she should not have a house that big nobody needs a house like that but there as as we it's a one long shot the camera is following her she goes in she gets a toast we see people like gargoyles who are one sitting at the table one standing in a corner they don't they aren't speaking they're incredibly uh stoic and sad and she walks back in and she she sets the toast on the bed she's talking to her her uh, lover and then she decides she wants to give him a present that she's bought him. So she goes out, starts looking for the present. She gets very, very intense. She says, where's the present? Why isn't anybody talking? She's screaming, what is going wrong with you people? Where is the present? Where is the present? And her uh, manager, I guess is, he's the manager, um, mm-hmm. comes to her, holds her shoulders and says, you have to be brave. The plane crashed. Yeah. And then she, she loses it. She goes into the bedroom. She sees he's not really there, that it was all in her head. And uh, she breaks down 
in a just a volcanic fashion, and it is wonderful. It's just wonderful. The whole the the length of that scene and the way it unfolds for us is it's just like a beautiful bow. Uh, I I love it so much, and I think the just the the way the camera moves through the scene, it floats. We are we are just sort of the omniscient cameraman. You know, it's like we can see everything, and it's just gorgeous. I want I wanted more of that kind of artistry in the rest of the film, that I feel like it, those kind of events were few and far between. Uh, well, but that that moment I think speaks to the nature of the film being. Um, the 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 wacky uh anti chronological structure of it being much more of an emotional journey rather than just a, a chronological journey of her life i think that fits in very nicely with that and i think that's a, one of the things that makes that such an incredibly strong scene because you're at this point in her life where she desperately needs that love and here it is taken away from her and it it truly is just an incredibly powerful scene. I mean, everything you said about it is is spot on perfect. Um, I, yeah, I think um, more scenes like that would be would be fine. But you know, again, it's the, it's the nature of a biopic. It's like you know, it, that's a magical moment. Period. The you know the fact that they were able to to put that into the story, I think, was you know just a, a you know storytelling. Uh, uh, you know, a gift that it was given to them that that's, I mean, it's an awful way to put it, but something that happened in, in Edith's life that they were able to incorporate into the story. It's not necessarily going to happen like that all the way through. Um, but I mean, I, well, well, you said there were some other ones though, right? Well, I, you know, I want to go back to this because I, I'm not sure I made my point clearly enough. I, I think that it's not that I want more scenes like that with that that level sort of emotional intensity but at that level of just sort of filmmaking artistry mm. uh I, you know and i want to compare it i'm going to compare it to whiplash which i thought had one of the most adventurous cameras um of any of the films and, and i'm even comparing that to birdman because birdman you know it has this this incredible kind of polish and and um flash because it's all sort of this faked one long take which is really great the first time you see it and you know then it just sort of wears off and and i i just sort of lost uh lost the luster of that and yet i go back and watch whiplash again and i you know the way they move that camera to capture otherwise banal experience of of the tiny movements of you know the horns or the you know moving back and forth between symbols the way they capture the sweat and the blood on the drum i mean that was an adventurous camera that was an incredibly um sort of extreme cinematography for me um Agreed. that i thought was really wonderful and this is the same sense that i get from this sequence in la vie en rose that it was it was taking an artistic approach to tell a story using the the movement of the camera to assist in unraveling and unveiling this story for us and i think that's something that is a that was a really powerful i mean you use the word gift i'll use it too it's a gift to this film uh that they took that level of, of sort of risk with the camera i think and and doing something different and i want more of i I want more of that um well i i do think that the camera uh i found it to be an incredibly beautifully shot film i really loved the look of it the whole way through i felt it was very um 
dreamy a lot of times. It had a, a, a almost a hallucinatory feel sometimes. I loved it when she was on stage and like there's that one performance. I can't remember which one of the performances it was, but um, it might be like the first time that she performed at the music music hall. But you've got her with that big microphone in front of her and she just is looks overwhelmed and then she starts and then it comes in behind her and you just get like a close shot of her hand as it's just moving the silhouette of it is moving through the light and then you've got her from you know just this close-up of you know just over her shoulder and you've got just little detail shots that i appreciated so much because it really yes you've got the big moment of this is what's happening but it's it's made up of those details that are the things that a person uh, remembers like those are the things that are are those those triggers in their head and i feel like um between olivier and his uh, and his dp was it tetsuo uh, i think that they really found just a magical way to kind of uh capture a lot of that so so i agree with you but at the same time um, I mean, I agree with you about that particular scene, but I feel like they actually did shoot it in a way that I really found um, quite, quite lovely. Uh, I, uh, two points. First of all, uh, okay. Uh, second, uh, I'm really glad that you brought up those the points about her, uh, the point about her first big performance uh, with the giant microphone, because I thought that was a wonderful experience. Uh, so much so that I used two images from the film for our, <laughs> right. our Facebook. I noticed that. <laughs> one, one from the front and one from the back, the same scene. <laughs> uh, I think they're maybe 50 frames apart. <laughs> it was, uh, so anyhow, um, I, I found that really moving. And I think her eyes are just captivating in that, in that, uh, that particular sequence. Uh, now to the other uh, segment or the other sequence that I found really powerful was uh, dealing with her blindness as a child. Mm, that's and the other one I was going to bring up. Yeah, it's funny. Oh, well, we had the exact all the same seat. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! Uh, maybe you. This should be your turn because I I labored on about that one. I, I you know I I, I think that uh, I mean I don't know I don't want to keep laboring on about each of these scenes, but I, I did find it to be an incredibly touching moment. She goes through this. Uh, I can't remember what it is, uh, ketatitis or something that she she gets that causes temporary blindness in her as a child when she's living at the brothel uh, where her grand that her grandmother uh, manages. Temporary, and we should add, really gross. Yeah, her eyes are just it. It's really not, I, I'm not glad a pleasant that they experience. put the blindfold on her because <laughs> it looked yeah. horrible. Yeah. But um, yeah, but it was shot um in just a. a just kind of a beautiful way, uh, particularly when she's coming out of it, and you've kind of got that, you know, the the um, uh, the you know the focusing, working on kind of focusing and finding things again, and um, it was just it was very it was just a very touching uh, bit. I, I really liked the way that they dealt with that, and I liked the way they dealt with a lot of visuals that 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 people connect with like there's a a shot toward the end where, where it's it's just a shot of a frog like sitting on a on a leaf you know by the i don't know it was by the lake where she was when she was an old lady uh or old at the age of 47 um just a still of that or a still of her or a, or a shot of her as the young child or a shot of her her child that she lost or all these different shots that kind of come in as these flash images that um I just found so haunting. And I think that's, that was the experience I had of the period when she was blind. It was like beautiful imagery, but it was also very haunting imagery. 
I I really agree. I mean, that's that's just what I was going to reflect on. I think it was. Uh, I, I thought that was really beautifully done. Um, you know, there's one other bit that just for some reason latched onto my brain. Uh, her roast beef sandwich. <laughs> Is that not the most obscene roast beef sandwich you've ever seen? I'm trying to remember it now. It's like the roast beef sandwich. When she meets, she first meets the boxer guy and she's sitting at the thing and she brings the roast beef sandwich. She doesn't know what it is. (laughs) What is this? Oh yeah, that's right. It's roast beef. And it's, it's, it's like eight and a half inches of just sliced meat and a couple of pieces of white bread. It's it's just awful. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. But they, they really did a good job with that roast beef sandwich. Yes, they did. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, any other um, elements you want to pull out of this film as we move toward the end? I, you know, I, as somebody who hadn't listened to a lot of Edith Piaf music, I found that uh, a couple things about the music that I wanted to say. First, I definitely appreciated the way they, um, they balanced the use of the score and the songs. Uh, the score by Christopher Gunning I thought that they um, didn't feel that they had to overwhelmingly uh, uh, use elements from the songs in the score. I mean, the title of the film for the American audience is La Vie en Rose. There's only, I think, just a couple scenes where they actually have a hint of La Vie en Rose in part of the score. And I was very appreciative that they didn't feel like they needed to overwhelm us with that as part of the theme. Yeah. And then the other thing was, I, I also felt like, you know, they didn't feel like, hey, this is a movie about Edith Piaf. We have to overwhelm the audience with song after song after song of hers. Um, yes, you get a good sense of her songs, but I didn't feel like they were hitting me over the head with every possible Edith Piaf song that she performed because she's just so great. Um, right. In fact, that whole performance, the, I, I can't remember now if it's the first performance at the music hall where you don't even hear her singing at all. It just you you just you get all the moments of her performing. You get her hand gestures and all that, but it's just score. As it's just this uh, these shots of her and the audience and everybody enjoying it and her kind of coming out of her shell as she starts singing. And I was like, that is the most clever way to portray this, where it's not necessarily about the songs. It's just about the, kind of this this birth of the performer and the experience that she's having and the and the uh, experience that the audience is having. Yeah, it, it was even a relief. I, I love that you yes. pulled out that sequence. I, I found myself really thinking, gosh, this is great that we we can actually experience her emotionally again uh, without getting lost in, in a two-hour and 20-minute kind of glee episode. You know, I mean, it, it really, these musical uh, biopics can can go down that track pretty quickly. Absolutely. Um, and yet I found myself, I don't know, I, a little bit teased with some of the more iconic songs. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to hear all of Mjord, uh, Milord, you know, I, I wanted to, I love that song. And, and, uh, that's like the iconic <laughs> Edith Piaf song for me. And, um, <laughs> so I was surprised they cut that one off right at the middle. I could have used a little bit more of that. Um, was that one of the ones that she like collapsed in the middle of? No, no, no. That was in the very beginning where she was, uh, she was just saying, I have to go sing this jerk song or something she goes into the <laughs> into the studio into the right, and, right. Uh, so i it, it was her older so gotcha you know we had at that point no context i just thought it was funny that they made some of those choices because some of the big songs we don't get much play with even though clearly they had the rights to the songs you know it's not like one of those what was the recent biopic where they didn't have the rights of any of the songs that we we talked about it was um 
Oh, goodness. Gosh, I can't remember. They didn't have the rights to use oh, this. Oh, it was, the, it was, the, uh, it was a, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, Hendrix. Uh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, right. So they had to do his story before he became the saint yeah. that he is. Yeah, yeah. See, I, they clearly didn't have that trouble uh, no. with these songs. Uh, you know, we had all the songs. Um, so, but they're very tough cute songs. Tough they're, they're, they're cute songs. I think. Uh, I think a, a number cabaret. Yeah, it's cabaret yeah. songs. Easy. And, and so it's because of that. It's not songs that tie into the emotional core of the story. And so I think that's maybe why um, it, you know they chose to not necessarily play so much of the songs all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. Fair point. Uh, how did it? Uh, how did it do? You ready to talk about how it did? Do you know? Uh, yeah, this film actually. Um, yeah, the numbers for this one were were actually fairly easy to find, uh, which was a relief. I wasn't sure if it would all be in euros or not, but I actually found it all in dollars. It came out um, in uh, June two thousand seven. It cost twenty five million dollars to make. The uh, prints and advertising. I think that this is only the U.S. prints and advertising, $5 million. So, you know, $30 million uh, to kind of get it out into the uh, the U.S. And domestically, it ended up making about $10.3 million. Internationally, it did obviously a lot better, $76 million internationally. So all uh-huh. told, when you um, balance it all out and you look at adjusted profit per finished minute, it ended up making about... Four hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars per finished minute. So it did pretty pretty good for itself. Did I catch that right? This is a hundred million dollar film. No, no, no. It, it cost uh, 20- seventy. It made no. It made seventy-six. And what was the U.S.? Oh, oh, only twelve. Oh, yeah. The U.S. was like ten. Ten. So yeah, All right. it wasn't quite there. Is that eighty-six point three? Yeah. Wow. Adjusted, it's close to a hundred, but yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, it, it rightfully so. I mean, this is again. I I, I talk about these little little character moments when Marlena Dietrich come over, comes over to her to introduce herself and tells her that she's, you know, she has the voice of the soul of Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, watching her like nearly knock the table over as she's <laughs> watching Marlena, Dietrich, it is it is just adorable. Yeah, it's just it's absolute magnetism. Oh, she's so great. Uh, yeah. Okay. I think I think um uh Olivier Dehan um really figured out the right way to tell this 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 story. I mean it's not a story I feel like I need to return to over and over again uh if ever again, but I learned a lot about the life of Edith Piaf. I'm grateful that I got to have that experience and really get a sense of who this performer is and was more introduced to her music cuz I really wasn't. Um so thank you Olivier for that and um uh, you know Olivier's uh, he's gone on to he directed that uh, Grace of Monaco film that came out last year with Nicole Kidman playing uh, uh, Grace Kelly. Um, I missed that one, but uh, it didn't get as quite as big a push as I thought it would. But um, yeah, we'll see mm-hmm. if he's able to kind of keep getting stuff out uh, out there. But uh, this is definitely the film that uh, got Marianne Cotillard on the map for the United States uh, for us. I mean, she's been all over the place, it seems, since this movie came out. And she was she just has. nominated for Best Actress this year. Right, right. For two Days, One Night. For Two Days, One Night, right. Uh, she's she's amazing. She's coming up. Uh, we're going to see her in uh, The Little Prince. She's uh, the voice of the Rose. Um, a Rigged World, Macbeth. Uh, she's in the Assassin's Creed uh, video game film. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, obviously, we saw her in uh, Inception and Big Fish. 
Um, she was and, a big fish. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, she was. She was. Yeah, she was. I I I know those things. <laughs> uh, all right, Andy. I say we need to rank it. All right, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, rank your favorite films and then look at our favorite films and let's see if they line up. And you know what's funny? I say that every week. You know how I say that every week? I do know how you say that every week. Every week I say that same thing. And today I went to coffee with a dear friend of mine, uh, uh, JJ. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's telling me he started uh, he started listening to the show, and then realized that he needed to start from the beginning. So he went to the beginning. I didn't know that he did this. This is one of those kind of those con- bits of context shock, you know, when when you know somebody and they tell you, "Hey, I've been listening to you right. like, <laughs> talk in my head." For this. And I start telling stories like, "Oh, you know that one time, you know, Andy and I were doing this thing." He says, "Yeah, I I, I know." I heard it, and I said, "Oh, and and you know, there's this. We do this Instagram pony prize thing, and it's a you know that we this is wonderful guy in uh, England who did, he's Stephen Smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know about that too. You know, it's like it's. I'm not used to that. I still I'm doing this a long time. I'm still not used to that. Anyhow, I say that every week. Go to Flickchart, rank your rank. And so you know what he did, and he has been, and he compares our." rankings with his ring and he pulls up the computer as we're sitting there at starbucks he's he, we were talking about some other things he opens the computer he says go look at my flick chart and it turns out there he is he has ranked all the movies that he's seen and that we've seen and he's he compares them How just funny. like we ask Excellent. I, that's a thing i love so, it so other people should do that because it's fun absolutely is and then tell us how we did compared to yours. We'd like to hear. Absolutely. Right. That's a long way for me to say. Uh, you know, he also said we should tighten it up in some areas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Let's rank it. Go for it. All right. Le'Veon Rose or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh Brother. I will say Oh Brother. I, I mean, yeah, like we said, Le'Veon Rose is a, an incredible experience to learn about her life. And it's all about Marianne Cotillard. But I just don't think I'll return to it very often. Yeah. So, brother, I definitely will. I, let me. I, had you seen it? No, this was my first experience with it. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. Good. Le'Veon Rose with the Sandlot. Hmm. I I really enjoy the Sandlot, but I'm going to give it to Le'Veon Rose just for her performance. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, Le'Veon Rose or the Lady Killers. I might have to do the same. Yeah, and Le'Veon Rose. Le'Veon Rose or When Harry Met Sally? I would do When Harry Met Sally. It's just imminently watchable. Yeah. Le'Veon Rose or Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade? Indiana Jones. Yeah, I got to go with Indiana Jones. Le'Veon Rose or 500 Days of Summer? 500 Days of Summer. Yeah, exactly. Did you... You're saying? <laughs> Le'Veon Rose or Siriana? I would do Siriana. Probably, uh, really? I would. Remember, I loved that movie. Yeah, I know. I didn't love it as much. I'll give it to you. I'll probably watch it before I would watch this one again. Le'Veon Rose or Field of Dreams? Le'Veon Rose. Absolutely Field of Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. 
right. 10. Rack them up. Rack them up. You're a 10? No, 10 if I have to do your crazy numbering scheme. So that makes you a zero? <laughs> Are you? Or where do, I, would I, make me, no, it would not make me a zero. I would be probably about a three. So go ahead. You can, you can have it. You can have it. All right. Oh, there you go. 110 out of 175. That still, I think, is pretty good. I agree. I actually, I, I agree with you, right? It's pr- almost practically, practically in the middle. <laughs> Close. <laughs> all right, all right. So this was this wrapped up our uh, our mystery series. Do you want? Can you just refresh people what we were what we were doing here? Yeah, this was uh, you know this crazy idea we had of creating a series of four films that are connected somehow. We found a connection between these four films, which are Syriana, Million Dollar Baby. L.A. Confidential, La Vie en Rose. So there is a connection between those. Or I don't know if I'd say a connection, but there is a theme that we found that uh, all of those films fit into. And uh, because of that connection, we've created this this series here. And now what you need to do is, if you can figure out what this connection is and you want to be the one who wins the prize... Which is Pete? A t-shirt. It is the next. No, wait. Year. I can I can build this up a little bit better. You can. <laughs> it is the fantastic. We still have some around. The fantastic uh, 2014 end of year commemorative next real t-shirt, uh, hand illustrated by friend of the show Joel Michael Harris, uh, who is uh, uh, very kindly donated his talents to. Uh, to that shirt. And so you win, you get this shirt. It's, you can't buy them anymore. We're just going to send you one because you will have proven your awesomeness if you get it right and you're first. That's right. It's a race. So what you need to do, if you can figure it out, is you need to go to Twitter and you need to tweet us with hashtag TNR guess the series and your answer. And the first hashtag person TNR who sends that series. to us, TNR, uh, hashtag TNR guess the series, with the correct answer, the first person is going to win the prize. I haven't typed this up. Can you get it in 140 characters minus hashtag guess the series at the next reel? Yes. Can you actually, you can type it up in that few characters. So you should be able to do this in a single tweet. That's what we're saying. Yes, I'm going to test it. <laughs> Don't press send. No, I won't. Okay, so that's what you got to do. We you'll do that, then we'll reach out to you. We'll, we'll we will get your address and send you the big prize. Can you wait. absolutely can fit it all in a tweet. Awesome. Just test uh, it. Good. All right. Well, if that's the case, do we? So now we can go back to telling people where we go from here. We can. How exciting is that? <laughs> that's really exciting. I hate keeping things from people. Well, and, you know, the whole reason we did this is because we we pushed off our Seven Samurai Family uh, series, which we were going to be doing in this window. But then we realized that there is this remake of of The Magnificent Seven that's actually going to be coming out sometime in the future. And we want to include that in The Seven Samurai Family. So now we've got to push that series off until that happens. So we needed to fill this in. And and you came up with this great idea of doing a, a, a the mystery series, which I, I think was quite fun, actually. I, I, I really like the way this played out. Yeah. Even if nobody ever gets it. I, that's right. Where, we're, I, we're just gonna, I get another shirt. We're going <laughs> to dangle this out there until someone finally guesses it. That's right. <laughs> 
so, yeah, so then where do we go from here? So now we're going to jump into a, a film noir series, which is going to be a lot of fun. I know we've talked about a few noirs in the past, but we're going to start with Double Indemnity next week, which I just love. And then we're going to hit Detour, Scarlet Street, Out of the Past, Ace in the Hole, and End on Touch of Evil. Oh, what a great collection. Yeah, this the is last a, time I, I last time I saw Double Indemnity, we almost talked about it, right? Because it was uh, it was part of the Chautauqua Classic Film Series. So the last time I saw this was in the perfect classic, uh, you know, like unremodeled era, uh, tiny theater uh, in the balcony with popcorn. I mean, it was just the perfect experience to see nice. this film. I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, absolutely! It's such a brilliant movie. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, okay, do you have any any other news? No, I think that's it, man. Man, I gotta go to bed. All right, I gotta go run through the streets of Montmartre and sing songs on street corners all night long. start high or low let's start low and end on a high okay so this is uh amazon uh kenneth ryan one star a true disappointment this is a beautifully filmed story of one of the most exciting performers of her time that is very badly edited and leaves out a very important segment of her career, the tap dance she did with the Nazi occupation of France. Edith Piaf was a true neurotic survivor of dark periods in European history, the First and Second World Wars. I rented this movie expecting a balanced review of her life, but all it is is a discussion of her difficulties growing up and her love life. Passing mention is given to her successes. Plus, the lead actress slips in and out of character throughout the film. Edith Piaf was sickly, less than good-looking, and hunched over all her life. Yet she had a stage presence and voice that mesmerized audiences. The performances were from original records that were poorly remastered and lip-synced by a healthy, lively actress who was bent over and sickly whenever she walked somewhere. Buy some CDs if you want to hear the real Edith Piaf. Rent this DVD, but do not buy it. It is almost a disservice to Edith Piaf's memory. Man. So everything we just said is so wrong. Poo on us, apparently. Poo on us. Well, mine is uh, from uh, L. Giles, who loves this performance to the tune of four stars. Mm. And yet I I give it to you uh, because L. Giles also agrees with us. Oh, good. Yeah. Of course, says L. Giles. This is the film for which Marion Cotillard received the Oscar and shot to superstardom. Eh, I don't know about that. She did an incredible job. The movie itself wasn't as good as the actress. However, it's definitely worth seeing, especially if you're an Edith Piaf fan, even if you're not. The story is somewhat bumpy, but the lead performance is stunning. Yep, pretty true. There you go. I wouldn't call her a superstar. No, I wouldn't, although she certainly has uh, has made it bigger on the scene than somebody like Audrey Tatu has on the, oh. gl- on the global scene. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, which that's true. Saddens me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, me too. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.